You ever watch those videos of soldiers returning home? Maybe meeting their family in the airport or surprising their kids at school, showing up unexpectedly at a high school graduation or the last home football game, being their family holiday celebrations and nobody expected it, even the reunion with their dog, been away from. I could watch those all day long. Of course, I cry all day long, but I watch them. There's another kind of homecoming I've seen that is just as moving to me, not when the individual comes back, but when a whole, when a whole unit of soldiers from all over the country returns from their deployment to an airport. And they come in the gates of the airport there and begin to walk in and then look what happens many times. So the soldiers are a little taken aback, but you can tell they appreciate that expression. But the question I'm going to ask is, why does a crowd of people do that? Why does the crowd respond that way? Well, they, they know the threats the soldiers face on our behalf. They know the courage that's required for them to do their duty. They know what the soldiers and their families have sacrificed to serve. They know how crucial it is for our nation's freedom and our security, and they're, they're grateful. What we see there is that every outward expression of thanksgiving is the overflow of a heart of gratitude on the inside. Now, now you and I know from the earliest days that gratitude is the right response to some good. I mean, almost as soon as our children learn to talk, right after da-da and no and mine, <laughs> parents teach their children the right way to request something, please. And the right way to respond when something's given. Thank you. And that's not to create little robots out of our children who know the right things to say in the right social situations. It's because as parents, we want to cultivate in our children a heart of gratitude. Gratitude. It's a quality of character that shapes the way we interact with the world. It's a way of life that emerges from a particular disposition of the heart, a bent of the heart. It is, to use a word that we don't use much anymore, uh, it is a virtue of a, of a life. There's a Benedictine monk named David Sindel Rast who said that gratitude includes appreciation, recognizing that something has value to you that has nothing to do with its monetary worth, and the recognition that valuable thing has come to you for free. David Emmons, who studies these kinds of things scholastically and academically, says that gratitude is affirmation of goodness, that there are good things in the world, and a recognition that that goodness is coming from someplace outside of ourselves. So if I put those two things together, you kind of get this, that a heart of gratitude grows by paying attention to the good and valuable things that intersect our lives and being aware that the source of those things is a generosity that is outside of us or beyond us. So you see, gratitude and thanksgiving are related, but they're not the same thing. Gratitude always precedes thanksgiving because every outward expression of thanksgiving is the overflow of a heart of gratitude. Now, you know, it's Thanksgiving week, and, and this is the one holiday that has, has, for the most part, resisted rebranding by our culture. Uh, and now, some try to identify the whole week with the cooking of a rather large bird, okay? <laughs> the turkey day, right? Or the thing about the football games, the shopping is going to come the day after Thanksgiving. But for the most part, as we refer to it, it stays Thanksgiving. 
And the point of it's right there in the name. Thanksgiving. Which immediately raises a great question. To whom? <laughs> I'm giving thanks to whom? Andrew Peterson has a great line in the song where he says this, don't you ever wonder why, in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much that goes right and beauty abounds? Don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? And what we're gathering here this morning to say is that we know who the someone is. It's the one true God, the creator, king of the universe, who's beyond us, who in mercy generously, freely gives blessing and good to us in ways we see, in ways we don't see. He has acted for our good. And yes, we want to thank him for all of this. Thanksgiving is the most stubbornly God-centered of all our national observations, our national holidays. And it, it would be very helpful for us as a nation to make sure that we continue to recognize that the very soul of our nation would do well to give thanksgiving in an actual, real way. But as God's people today, what we want to look at is the reality. It's not just a day, but it's a way of life. It's a character that is shaped by gratitude. So last week we began looking at this. We began looking at Psalm 105. And if you have your copy of the Bible, would you turn there to Psalm 105? If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a hard back, black, black bound one in front of you. Grab that. We always want you to follow along so you can see where the authority for what we're saying comes from in the Scriptures. This psalm, perhaps written by David, certainly was, was first brought into public by David. And it was first sung when the people of Israel brought the ark of God, which had been captured by the, their enemies, the Philistines, in a battle, back to the capital city of Jerusalem. And the ark is this box, not very big, is gold-plated, has a lid on it that has carved angels. And inside the box are the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And for the people of Israel, that box represented the very presence of God himself. And so when they brought this back, where it had been held captive, and they brought it back to the capital city, now they're saying, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he's good. For all that he has done, give thanks. And so last week in verses 1 and 2, we looked at the acts of thanksgiving. How do you respond? That this is not just a passive receiving of God's good, but there's an active life response. So we said, we, if that's the truth, then we rely on his name. We trust him. We testify to his goodness, recognizing that every good he gives us points to the ultimate good of what God has done for us and Christ dying for us and rising again. And we glorify him. We worship him and make much of him for who he is. Those are the acts of thanksgiving. Today, we want to probe under that and behind that to ask what sort of heart results in thanksgiving like that? What sort of heart feeds thanksgiving like that? Because it really is true that every outward expression of thanksgiving is the overflow of the heart of gratitude. So we want to hear the psalmist's full call to salvation. So would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? We're going to look at Psalm 105. Ella's going to come and read for us today. This first, this full part of the kind of the call to worship from the psalm. Psalm 105. She's going to read for us verses 1 through 6. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. 
Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Ella. So how do we do it? How do we feed gratitude into our hearts so our lives overflow with thanksgiving? Well, the first thing I want you to notice is this, that every grateful saint has a heart to rejoice in whose you are. This is not a general call of thanksgiving to everybody. It's specifically geared to the people of God. Look in verse 6. O offspring of Abraham, his servants, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. That's who this call is, is focused to. It's the offspring of Abraham. Abraham, the father of our faith. Abraham, a childless, moon-worshipping, 80-year-old nomad. That God called out and said, come follow me. I'm going to show you a land you've never seen before. I'll make you into a family. And he made a promise to Abraham that he would have a family so large that he couldn't count, like counting the stars in the sky, all the family that he would have. And what he was referring to was those that would follow him who would see uh, and trust God in the same way Abraham was. That they would trust and believe him and obey him in that way. And so this started with one son, the child of the promise named Isaac. Then Isaac had children. So, so now Abraham's grandchildren, there's, there's Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And little by little, this, this little bitty family becomes the nation of Israel. They were God's chosen ones. I've always loved the Lord's explanation for why they were chosen. Deuteronomy 7 says this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. He says, look, you guys had no resume. You had nothing all to recommend you at all. The reason you're chosen is because I loved you and I'm gonna keep my word. I'm faithful to what it was that I promised. It was all focused on him. So if you've trusted Christ and you have a relationship with God uh, in that way and you're part of his big family, do you know why that happened? <laughs> Not because you or I were morally more deserving than a genocidal maniac like Hitler or a drug runner or a murdering abortionist. Sin that condemns is equal no matter how, how, how it shows up in our lives. Neither is it because we were American in the Bible Belt South, had good parents, went to youth camp at the right time, or even prayed the right prayer with the right words in the right order, or that we have remarkable potential to do great things for God. There's one reason and one reason only why you're a part of him, because the God of the ages who made you, loves you, pursued you, and provided a way for you to move from death to life and know his love. It's just because of him. The whole story is because of him, not because of us. Salvation by the gospel of Jesus 
includes forgiveness of sin and removal of guilt and cleansing of shame and assurance of life forever and adoption into God's family. So in Galatians it says this. It says that God sent his son to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. If you've trusted Jesus, you've submitted to him as Lord, you are a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. That's the only way you get to be a part of God's forever family. To call God your father rather than just your creator is having trusted Christ, submitted to him as Lord. And what that means is that one of the stars that was scattered out there for Abraham to try to count was for you. If you've trusted him, we sang it just a few moments ago. I am who you say I am. And who he says you are, if you've trusted Christ, is that you're chosen, you're loved, you're treasured. You are a son or daughter of the king. And that is the basis for our invitation to enjoy the Lord's feast. To enjoy his goodness, to enjoy all his blessings. Do, do you recall the story of an odd-named man in the Old Testament named Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth was a grandson of King Saul of Israel. When he was very young, Israel was attacked, and as the nanny that was caring for him fled, she dropped him or fell, and his feet were crushed, and he was permanently disabled. After Saul died, Mephibosheth fled Jerusalem, the capital, to the farthest edge of the kingdom, far away as he could get, because he knew, everybody knew, what new kings did to the old king's family. They took care of him. So he's far, far away. But the new king was King David. And King David had made a promise to Saul's son, Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, that when he, David, became king, he would look out for Jonathan's family. So after he came to power, he began to ask around, is there anyone still left of Saul's family that I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And they found Mephibosheth, and they went to the far edge of the kingdom, and they got him, and they brought him back, and they brought him right into the presence of the king, right into the throne room. Can you imagine how his heart is beating, not knowing in this moment how much longer his head was going to be on his shoulders? And the king says to him this. He says, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat of my table always. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The king, you see, welcomed Mephibosheth as his very own family, Mephibosheth had nothing to offer. He couldn't work. He couldn't serve as a soldier. He couldn't do anything. The king's goodness to him was completely on the basis of another. It was all of grace. What a glorious picture of the gospel that saves that saves you and me. Because brothers and sisters, we are, every one of us, we are Mephibosheth. 
We're distant from him. We're in a far country. We got nothing to offer him whatsoever that would make him want to come after us. But the king came to us and he pursued us to take care of us. And he comes and he welcomes us home on the basis of what another did, on the basis of that Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose again to overcome death. And he adopts us as his children and welcomes us home to feast on his goodness. It's all because of another another that we have any grace at all. So this Thanksgiving, maybe let that reality feed your heart, feed the sense of gratitude with that. And can I say, if you're here this morning and you've not yet crossed the line of faith to move from trusting yourself to trusting God, if you like Jesus, but you've never repented of sin and trusted Christ, can I tell you, that the king has open arms for you. Can I tell you, there's a place at the king's table for you. Today, run to Christ. Run home to him. He has goodness just waiting for you. So a grateful heart is fed by our rejoicing in whose you are. But a grateful saint also has a heart to remember what he's done. You see verse 5 in Psalm 105, remember the wondrous works he has done, his miracles and the judgments that he uttered. Psalmist urges the people to remember how God has acted on their behalf through the things he has done or the things that he has said. Now, most of Psalm 105 from verse 7 to the end in verse 45, if you read all of that, you will find is a recounting of Israel's history as the people of God. It's kind of a, a miniature narrative of the Old Testament. It's a great way to learn it, to put it all to song so you could sing it and, and remember. So what's he say in this narrative? Well, everything there revolves around Yahweh. When it says in your Bible, capital L-O-R-D, that's, that's Yahweh, that's I am, that's God's personal name. That's saying this is about the eternal, uncreated creator who sustains all things everywhere. It's all centered on him. Then he goes back and reminds again of Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs that he promised to become a people and also promised them a land. He said, you have a promised land. So God had a purpose in everything that he was doing. And he protected them even as they grew. So Abraham and Sarah had this one son of the promise, Isaac, when they were 100 years old, this tiny little family, and God protected them. And then, as, and then as Isaac grew, and then he had his family, and it wasn't much bigger. It was a couple of children, and that grew. And then came Jacob, and, and he had his family. And, and all the way along, there were moments where, where threats came from outsiders. They could have wiped the family out, but God came and, and protected them particularly. One of those 12 sons of Jacob was named Joseph. Joseph was, was the one that his brothers grew jealous of. They hated him so much, they sold him into slavery. And they took him down to Egypt where he was put in slavery there. But God had future plans. And Joseph went from the pit of slavery in jail to the palace where he became a high government official. And a few years later, when a famine hit all of that part of the world and looked like everyone was going to starve to death, and all of, of Abraham's extended family came came, and they came to Egypt because they'd heard there was food there. 
There was a way to survive. And when they got there, it was Joseph who was the high government official that was in charge of all the food distribution. And in the middle of all of that, he provides for them. And he says, oh, the thing you meant to me for evil, God meant to me for good so that we had the saving of this people. God was protecting his people. And so they come and they settle there in Egypt and they grew to massive numbers, but the story says they were cruelly enslaved by the Egyptians, who by this time were the lone superpower in the world. And they enslaved the, the, the Hebrews and made them be their kind of economic engine. And then, then God sent Moses as a deliverer. And God showed his power through the plagues and the things that came and delivered this family out. And now this family has become a nation. Two million are so strong. And he leads them out and liberates them. And in the wilderness, God guided them. There was a, a pillar of, of a, or a, a column of cloud by day and a column of fire by night. Whenever that would move, that would guide where they were going. When they were hungry, God provided manna for them to eat. When they were thirsty, he provided water from the rock for them to drink. He satisfied their every need. The scripture tells us someplace else, their shoes didn't even wear out. While they wandered for 40 years around after some other disobedience. And then you get to verse 43 at the very end of Psalm 105, and it says this. He brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations. They took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. They came to the land that he had promised. And what you see is that all of that, all of his action is grace on their behalf. So the psalmist is urging them to give thanks specifically for how God was actively, intentionally engaged with their lives. He said, I'm not just thanking for the things that he gave, for his stuff, but thanking them for who he was to them. Remembering what God had done was the spring that was feeding their hearts then overflowed in this thanksgiving. Now, it's so very easy for us to forget all the ways that God has worked in the stories that we're living right now. We are a distracted people. We are an easily distracted people. So much going on, so much input into our minds, so much that comes around us. And that distraction causes us to have from time to time a kind of spiritual amnesia. So things happen to us that are from God, but then the next thing happens, and oh, look, and our minds and our hearts get distracted, and we forget what it was that God had done. Or more likely, we take all the, the unique, intricate blessings that are peculiar to your one and only life, to your one and only story, and we melt them all down into some kind of generic, one-size-fits-all, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for my family. Thank you, Lord, for my friends. Thank you, Lord, for my job. Thank you, Lord, for my health. Thank you, Lord, for food. And thank you, Lord, for shelter. And yes, we should thank God. Those are precious good gifts. And we should thank God for those things. But understand, those things are a part of what we call common grace. Those things come to all the people on earth just because God is an overwhelmingly generous God. What the psalmist is urging us to do as God's people specifically is remember the, the ways God has worked, not just what he's given his stuff, 
but the way he has been to us, how he has been around us in the context of this verse that we love to quote. For we know that God works all things together for good. Those that love God, those that are called according to his purpose, and his purpose is to make us more and more like Jesus. God works in, around, through our lives, not just in the stuff he gives, but in what he does to do good, to make us more like him, to accomplish his purpose in us. So, as we head into Thanksgiving, we want to give you an opportunity to be mindful, to remember how God has acted in and around your life in 2019. Would you find the card that's in your, uh, in your building? Go ahead and get it out, okay? Came in, you got a card in your building. Go ahead and grab that and get that out. Everybody needs one. So if you don't have a card, this is real easy. You can do it on the bulletin itself. You can find somewhere to use this. And this is the audience participation part of our message this morning. So I want you to kind of hang with me on this. Over the next few moments, I wanted you to ask the Lord to help you think through this last year, specifically how God has worked in and around your life story. In 2019, I remember a couple of prompts here for you. 2019, I remember that God has guided, he's sustained in this particular way. He's comforted in this grief. He's provided. He's protected in this way. He's given this, he's taken that away. He's been noticeably, tangibly present in. This year I remember that God has made his purpose clear. That God said no in this situation when I wanted a yes, or God said yes here where I was certain he would say no. God's given this new opportunity. In 2019, I remember that God has led me away from a place that was comfortable to engage in something well outside my comfort zone. God has liberated me from, I remember that God has surprised me or confronted me or changed me or shown me something I've never seen before. God used me to share the gospel with this person or enabled me to serve or to be ministered to through another person. God brought this person into my life for this purpose. For a moment, pray and think that through and jot down the three most evident places where God has intersected with your story in this year. Let the Spirit tell you that as a reminder of the fact that he is so very, very good to us. So go ahead, begin to jot those things down. I'll give you a few minutes to think about that. I love the line that says, I have lived in the goodness of God. We have all of us. So you've written some of those down, and the psalm says, if your heart has gratitude, let it overflow outwardly in thanksgiving. So I want to give you a chance to do that too. Would you just for a second turn to a couple of folks around you and share with them just one thing you wrote down. Just one thing. Take a second and give testimony to God's goodness in your life. Would you do that?
There's another place in the scripture that says the prayers of the saints are like incense to the Father, just praising him for his goodness. These moments are prayers to our Father, saying to him how kind he is to us. So you see, our grateful hearts show up when we rejoice in whose we are, remember what he's done, and then we, when we remain with him always. Verse three and four says, the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Seek his presence always. Now the translation says, seek his face continually. The most personal expression of your heavenly father, to be close enough to see his face, to see the twinkle in his eye or the sadness, to see the tears or the laugh lines, to see the tenderness or the concern or the hurt. It's talking about intimacy with your heavenly father. To stay in his presence, be, being very present to Jesus, mindful, aware, attentive of his intersection with your life. Because you see, gratitude is not a holiday, not a day. It's a way of life, not just Sundays, but every day. This is the way of a disciple who constantly aware of the Lord's presence, his life in me and around me of my need and my king's sufficiency. Stay present to him. Jesus said like this in John 15, he said, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. As the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Remain in my love. How you do that? It's simple. You listen. That's why we tell you to read the Bible and pray every day because you're hearing the voice of your heavenly Father. Then you watch. You watch through your life for the smallest little hints and whispers that that's where your king has been at work in your life. The smallest goodness every day since every good and perfect gift comes from him. Then you obey his every promptings, and then you rest. You rest for the one who knows you best and loves you most, is always working for your good, so you can rest in any circumstance. How do you remain? You, you listen, you watch, you obey, you rest. You do that every day in what you hear and what you see, and that feeds this heart of gratitude. Because see, we're still on our way home. We're not there yet. We haven't come through the gates home yet to the celebration. We're still in the battle and it can be so hard. This life can drain us of joy and peace and hope until you lift up your eyes and you notice that the king of all the ages who is your heavenly father has his eye right on you. For you are the apple of his eye. And he watches you and sees you and knows he's with you. He will never forsake you. He's always acting, generously giving of himself for our good. As another psalm says, his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. It will chase us all the way home because he's always been and always will be faithful to give what is best. 
And what's best is not his stuff. It's always him. And when we know that, no matter the circumstances you find yourself in this Thanksgiving, we will find our hearts so overflowing with gratitude that we simply must give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Let's stand together. So in these moments, maybe you'll want to come here and kneel at the front and just to give further expression to your heart of gratitude about how the Lord has worked in your life in this year. Our prayer for revival this week is that we would pray to have be a humble fellowship and part of our humility is recognizing that the source is not in us, it's outside of us. So as you come and pray for the Lord to stir in revival, that's another way. Or maybe for you it really is the day for you to come running to Jesus because you've never eaten at the Lord's feast. And today's the day for you to turn from sin and trust him. Come and cry out to him. So Lord, in these moments, as we have heard your heartbeat to us, would you help us in these moments to respond out of the overflow of hearts of gratitude. Do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come as we sing together.